an underlying theme of all of this is the question, are plant foods, specifically vegetables, uh, even beyond the seeds and leaves, the stems, the roots, are they containing compounds that are triggering our immune system or leading some people's bodies to initiate an autoimmune response and could eliminating them improve autoimmunity? Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to The Better Show with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I sat down to speak with Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Paul, you may know him as Carnivore MD, uh, is one of the leading authorities and voices on the science and application of the carnivore diet. He has used this personally to reverse autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, mental health issues uh, in both himself and hundreds of patients, uh, many of which who who were told their conditions were untreatable. Uh, He has his own personal podcast called the Fundamental Health Podcast, and he's been featured just about every everywhere, uh, including the Joe Rogan show, Bulletproof, Dr. Gundry. Uh, he was on doctor's TV and he is the author of the, uh, book, the carnivore code, unlocking the secrets to optimal health by returning to our ancestral diet. So what did we talk about today? Oh man, we couldn't get through everything. So I'm going to have to have him back for a second, uh, second interview, but we talked about plant foods, um, existing on a spectrum of toxicity, meaning that, uh, there are certain parts of the plants, uh, the leaves, the root system, uh, the seeds that can create dysregulation uh, when they are consumed. So we talk specifically about lectins and circadian clock genes, what lectins are, uh, if methods to reduce uh, things like lectins and oxalates and phytic acid, uh, like pressure cooking are warranted. We also talked about fats. So consuming the right type of fat, I think is really important. So we talked about linoleic acid, stearic acid, and sort of how the hierarchy, if you will, of consumption around polyunsaturated fatty acids has become uh, prized uh, in lieu of saturated fats um, and animal-based fats. So we talked about this idea that when you are when your fat cells are exposed to linoleic acid and these polyunsaturated fatty acids, that we have this difference in terms of what happens with the fat cells. So we have, and we talk about this in the podcast, the difference between hyperplasia of adipocytes and hypertrophy of adipocytes. Um, We also talked about how you can help to make your fat cells insulin resistant, which is actually a good thing. You don't want your fat cells to be too insulin sensitive and keep bringing things up. And some of the hormonal dysregulation, of course, that can happen from uh, consuming a lot of polyunsaturated fatty acids and the destabilizing effect that it might have on the cellular membrane. 
We got into um, uh, organ meats, so talking a little bit about which organ meats, where to start. Uh, if you're not somebody who's ever been raised on organ meats, certainly it can be a little bit of a jump to ask you to eat liver <laughs> or heart. So we talk about desiccated organ supplementation and what may, what supplements you may think of starting with. Uh, for women, what are some uh, you know tertiary or secondary or tertiary uh, supplements that you might consider as well? We talked about um, autoimmunity. We talked about COVID-19 and censorship. All in all, a very robust conversation. Lots and lots of goodies in here for you. So if you are somebody who is uh, suffering with autoimmunity or you're looking to lose weight or you're just trying to up-level your health, I think you're going to find a lot of juicy tidbits in this conversation. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Paul Saladino. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms, and here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Well, Dr. Paul Saladino, I'm so thrilled to welcome you to the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah. And I was saying this to you in the pre-chat. Thank you so much for rescheduling. Uh, as I was mentioning, the day before we were scheduled to have our talk, I came down with COVID I've had, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about my experience uh, in COVID and some of the changes that I've noticed in my appetite, but really appreciate your flexibility in, uh, in, in changing the, uh, changing the time of our conversation. Cause it's something I've been wanting to have with you for a long time. Of course, of course. Um, so as I was, um, as I've been following you for years, um, you know, on Instagram when you were carnivore, just carnivore MD, not carnivore MD 2.0. Um, and I've, one of the things I've really appreciated, uh, and sort of admired is your, uh, evolution in thinking, um, around the carnivore diet. And I want to talk a little bit about that before we do for people who haven't heard, uh, of carnivore or who you are, I'd love for you to, let's first start maybe by sharing a little bit of your backstory in terms of how you fell into carnivore, because this is by some accounts, some people, and we can talk about, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> dogmatic philosophical, you know, approaches to things, but some people have called carnivore a very extreme uh, diet. So would you mind, before we kind of get into the weeds and some of the science and stuff, what is, uh, what is your experience in terms of, you know, trying other diets, let's say, and how you fell into the carnivore diet and how, and what it did for you? I grew up pretty traditionally on the East coast in Virginia. Dad's a doctor, mom's a nurse, a lot of medical conversations at the dinner table, had eczema and asthma as a kid. I remember my parents forcing me to take albuterol inhalers, uh, throughout my childhood, I never had horrible asthma attacks, thankfully, but I do remember at least once, this is 
like my dad forcing me to take so many puffs of albuterol at the dinner table that I like puked in my pea soup, or maybe I'm mixing up PTSD memories of being forced to eat pea soup and <laughs> never, peas, liking, yeah. <laughs> never liking pea soup as a kid. It was, it was, this is foreshadowing of what was to come with my disdain for beans. Um, but, you know, I went to school at William and Mary, studied chemistry and biology, thought I was going to go into medicine. During those four years of college, saw a lot of physicians in my sphere who were unhappy. And so I took time off through hike the Pacific Crest Trail, was a ski bum, did a lot of adventuring, exploring New Zealand, did a lot of really fun stuff, which I think shaped my perspective on things, or at least changed the way that I think about things. Being in the wilderness has that effect on, on me. It just challenged, I don't know, something about being in the wilderness, adventure, risk, challenged me to think outside the box. Eventually, I remember working in a bike shop in Bend, Oregon, thinking, this is great. I'm not going to do this my whole life. So I went back to school at George Washington University for PA school first, I thought that PA school would be a good compromise. My dad's a doctor. I saw him get destroyed by medicine. I thought, forget it. I don't want to do that. So I, uh, I worked in cardiology as a physician assistant for four years, pretty quickly out of the gate as a physician assistant, maybe the first year or two, I realized that was not the end of the road for me. Western medicine, once I was actually in it and practicing, just smacked me in the face with its pharmaceutical, you know, based approach, symptom focused approach. And I thought this isn't, this isn't what I'm interested in. Uh, in retrospect, I think that I have more of an engineering mindset than a, than a medical mindset. Um, I like to know how things work. And I remember building things with popsicle sticks as a kid and taking things apart. And so this is the way that I think about medicine in general and human health is like, what is it the root of human health? What is the root cause of, of the illness and Western medicine for all of its best intentions doesn't do that very well at all. We have great, amazing pharmaceuticals and amazing technology that is fantastic at repairing you. If you're broken, mm -hmm. uh, we're good at putting out fires. We're not really good at understanding why they start or how to prevent them from starting. But those are the things that are most interesting to me because a lot of times once the fire started, once the, once the pathology becomes so bad that you end up at a physician, it's, it's hard to really get back full function. And I'm more interested in, in helping people get it, re retain as much of the function as they can and then, you know, restore and reclaim the full the fullness of human health. So and build and build on it. Yeah. 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 Optimize. Mm -hmm. Went back to medical school at the university of Arizona at that point, knowing that I wanted to do something in the integrative medicine, functional medicine, rebellious, you know, part of medicine. So I was I felt like kind of this double agent and like in medical school, I've kind of been to medical school before I'm skeptical of everything. I think a lot of my medical school professors and then the residents that I worked with were not, not so excited about the fact that I asked a lot of questions. And I learned more than once that asking too many questions in, in medical training is a bad idea. Uh, after medical school at the university of Arizona, I went to residency at the university of Washington during medical school. I had some pretty serious eczema flares I was doing a lot of jujitsu at the time and they limited me pretty severely in my martial arts training, which was a real bummer. But at that point I didn't really um, connect the dots like I did in my residency. Uh, I'll back up just one moment and say that during my PA years, I started to get interested in nutrition. And for whatever reason, I fell down the vegan rabbit hole first and did seven months of a vegan diet. Uh, a raw vegan diet at that and uh, didn't, didn't have a good experience with that. I think a lot of people uh, maybe have improvements in the beginning on plant-based diets, if they cut out processed foods and then 
much like my experience, have pretty severe health effects the longer they do it. Thankfully, I was only a raw vegan for seven months, but during those seven months, I had really, really bad GI symptoms, horrible gas, bloating, and I lost 20 plus pounds of muscle mass. So I ended up being quite skinny. Um, and that was not good for anything in my life. At the time, I was distance running. So I was able to somehow justify it, thinking that I was going to become a live, you know, East African like runner and it was going to be super fast. <laughs> like the and Kenyans. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, in yeah. fact, I was just getting super skinny and, and really farty. Mm. So it wasn't, it wasn't good. No good. Uh, adding back meat, I eventually went then paleo. I was kind of in the paleo sphere for probably the next 10 to 12 years and a really, a really intentional paleolithic diet, organic vegetables, organic fruit, nuts, seeds, mushrooms, and meat no organs at that time. And, you know, that worked okay, but my eczema continued to come and go throughout the time I mentioned medical school. And so at one point in residency at the university of Washington, I had such bad eczema that I just got frustrated and really came to the realization, the light bulb went on that there is still something in my well-constructed intentional diet that is triggering my immune system. And though I have periods where I don't have eczema, I have enough eczema that it's really frustrating. And I don't want to continue to kind of poke and prod at my immune system. Uh, why would I want chronic low-level inflammation and to piss off my, my immune system at any level when, when I can avoid that? I knew that fixing the eczema was my next step. And so I was thinking like, what am I doing? And that was really where I began to go down the rabbit hole and think maybe all of these plants that we've been told are so good for us, vegetables specifically, but all of them are not so good for us. And I thought, well, that's kind of a crazy notion. I heard about this thing called a carnivore diet. And my first thought was that's, that's completely bonkers. We know that these plants are good for us. We've been indoctrinated to think that we need plant chemicals or fiber and, and the more plants, the better and eat the rainbow, blah, blah, blah. But the more I thought about it and the more I researched it, I, the more I got interested and intrigued and I like to explore. So I decided to do it and I went fully into it at that point in my life, probably four or five years ago now and ate nothing but meat and organs and fat and salt for a year and a half. And there were a lot of amazing things that I learned from that. The first was that my eczema definitely responded positively to that sort of a change, as did my emotional state and my mental clarity. Those things got a lot better. Um, what I eventually learned after a year and a half was that long-term ketosis didn't work very well for me or for a lot of other people that I knew. So one of the one of the one of the things that comes along with a strictly carnivorous diet is ketosis because you have very very low carbohydrates your liver starts making ketones. And some people embraced that and felt like ketosis was great. Humans should always be in ketosis. And though I think there are benefits to having ketones occasionally, I think there are benefits to intermittent fasting. There are benefits to time-restricted eating. What I've learned is that's very powerful medicine and often overused. So for me, I found the downside was electrolyte abnormalities, uh, heart palpitations connected with those electrolyte abnormalities, sleep disturbances, hormonal abnormalities, declining testosterone, previously like 800 down to four to 500. And then, you know, I would hear in women cycle changes, lengthening, shortening, sometimes amenorrhea connected with this. And um, so at that point I have to kind of like, you know, as somebody that likes to do this, it likes to be in the wilderness. It likes to climb mountains and say like, where am I going? There's no map here. Um, you kind of look around, you go, oh, I think I'm, I'm on the wrong ridge. I have to go down this ravine or up this other one to get really to where I want to go. And so kind of looked around and thought about it and thought, you know, maybe, maybe carbohydrates aren't so bad for humans. I think that 
Um, at that point I could realize, like, I, I think that the vegetables is an interesting conversation and we can go down and talk about why vegetables, in my opinion, are not so good for humans. But what I learned was carbohydrates are probably not the, uh, the source of all evil for humans. And then if you're going to get carbohydrates, if I was going to choose to reincorporate them, the question is, how do I do that in the best way for me? Or are there better and, uh, less good sources of carbohydrates? So my thinking was, I don't want to go back and add in grains because I was pretty well convinced at that point that grains are seeds, which we know this is not, this is not debatable. Grains are seeds. Seeds are pretty highly defended and we'll go down this rabbit hole more in a moment, but, and I didn't want to incorporate wheat or oats or really rice into my diet at the time. So I started with honey and fruit thinking, well, honey is made by bees. There's not really a defense chemical in there. The bees are making this. And then um, fruit is the sweet, colorful part of a plant that the plant is actually trying to get you to consume um, to move the seeds somewhere else. So people get a little confused on this point, but if you think like a plant, most of this becomes clear. And this is kind of the first principle that's guided a lot of my uh, nutritional framework from that point. And that's that if you think about a plant, a plant is rooted in the ground and so is a fungus. And we can talk about mushrooms as well. So if, if, an, if a life form is rooted in the ground, it still has the same goal as other life forms, which is to move its DNA to the next generation. Well, how does it do that? A plant uses its leaves to photosynthesize, to convert sunlight to glucose through the chloroplasts and this you know, photosynthetic process. And then they put that, they use that energy to make DNA packaged in seeds. And those seeds are fairly defenseless. If those seeds were like little Skittles or candy for animals and they could just eat them, uh, without any negative consequence, this plants would have gone extinct many millions of years ago. There's this 450 million year coevolution between plants and animals in this arms race. So plants are actually pretty smart and pretty good at making their seeds fairly defended. They do a lot of things with seeds. They put lectins in seeds, which are carbohydrate binding proteins. They put defense uh, chemicals like digestive enzyme inhibitors. Some of them put freaking cyanide and hydrocyanic acid and other really, um, you know, strong compounds, glycoalkaloids in their seeds that will kill you if you eat too many of them. Um, beans, uh, legumes are famous for putting, you know, massive uh, digestive enzyme inhibitors in their seeds. I mean, if you eat, if you try and eat beans raw, you will go to the hospital with massive gastroenteritis. And there are documented cases of this hundreds uh, throughout human history of, of undercooked beans. So raw beans are so, so toxic. So plants are really smart and they've said, okay, our seeds are highly defended. We think of wheat as full of gluten and other problematic compounds. Uh, many people are familiar with the issues with this. So I didn't want to include grains in my diet, but fruit and honey seemed okay. And, you know, as I did this, I wore a continuous glucose monitor and I kept track of my labs. And it was interesting to see that so many of the things that I had been afraid of or that were talked about in ketogenic circles didn't actually come to pass. You know, I didn't get fat. I didn't get brain fog returning. My insulin didn't go sky high. I didn't get insulin resistant. My liver didn't get fatty. I didn't get visceral adipose tissue. None of these things happened. What happened was my fasting glucose actually went down. Um, we know that long-term ketosis will raise your fasting glucose due to the onset of what's called physiologic insulin resistance. And then I felt better overall. My electrolyte abnormalities got better. The muscle cramping, the heart palpitations, the sleep, the testosterone goes back up. You feel better in general. And fruit is delicious. Honey is amazing. And it allows for a lot more variety in the diet. So that's kind of been the evolution of my dietary philosophy over time, starting with something like vegan thinking, oh, meat is bad. And then realizing actually, no, meat is great. 
learning the anthropology and learning that meat and organs are at the center of the human diet for millions of years. I should have this in my diet. Going paleo, not quite nailing it with that. Continuing to have eczema, going carnivore, probably throwing a little bit too much out, baby with the bathwater a little bit, then reincorporating fruit and honey and thinking, okay, meat and organs are clearly the most sought after foods by humans for millions and millions of years. They're they're venerated, they're sacred. We should not vilify them. They've been wrongly um, denigrated for the last seven to eight decades in our culture. And we can talk about why. And then incorporating some fruit and honey is a great way to get low toxicity carbohydrates while still um, navigating this, uh, walking the tightrope between the maximum amount of bioavailable nutrients and avoiding as many plant toxins as possible. So that's an approach that I've called animal-based or carnivore-ish. And it works really well for me and other people. There's so much learning that came from that carnivore diet experience with the vegetables and the plants. And it's so controversial that I, I still think it's really valuable to talk about. And then it's been fun to continue to evolve and always learn with that. So that's kind of been my dietary journey. That was a long, uh, a long spiel, but hopefully that helps. Uh, no, it, it, it sets, it sets the, it sets the stage. So it's very useful because I think that one of the things that it demonstrates is your ability to, um, try new things. And then when that paradigm maybe works or it's good, but it's not great, your willingness to continue continue to dig in uh, and find alternate methods or evolve the philosophy as, as you go along. And that's, you know, I started off saying that I, I really admire that about you because I think that, you know, you have people in the nutrition space that are literally saying the same thing that they've been saying for 20 years. And, you know, it's like, eat less, move more. And it's like, guys, I get it. I get we're talking about thermo. Like, I know what you're talking about, this thermodynamics and calories in and calories out. However, uh, that is not the whole story, because if it was, we wouldn't have this like rampant, like the real pandemic, I'm going to say, is like the obesity and the, you know, the chronic diseases that we see. And your observation, you know, your N of one, if you will, uh, has been very much in line with my data set uh, is mainly women. Um, but I've been running, a, I started running a ketogenic diet, like probably 2016, 2017. I'm very interested in like brain metabolism and cognition and brain health in general, and started running it uh, very much like you know, all the guy, all the, all the cool cats were doing it. Right. It's like all, like, it was like one-to-one, you know, or four-to-one, right. No carbohydrates. And all the men in my practice were like, doc, this is the best thing ever. Like my testosterone and my, like my glucose regulate all this. And then the wives who were sort of doing the program, you know, alongside them were like, I don't know, man, I've lost like one or two pounds. I can't sleep dysmenorrhea or anovulatory cycles, as you were mentioning. And so where I've kind of landed is there's these, and we can talk about this a little bit as well, maybe is this sort of sexual dimorphism in our response uh, to foods, particularly for women who are in their reproductive years where, um, prolonged ketosis, uh, and there's kind of a funny observation. Um, and I don't know if you've, you've observed this at all, but for women, you know, what I have noticed is when something doesn't work the way that they were expecting it to, it's like, we blame ourselves. We're like, well, okay. So I, the ketosis didn't work. I just have to do more of it. You know, I have to just fast harder. I have to just calorically restrict more aggressively. I have to do the keto even better than I did last month. Right. And then of course, over time, this ends up like whacking the thyroid and like, they're not losing the weight and they can't sleep and all that. So where I've sort of landed is this more phasic approach uh, to keto, which is like alternating weeks for a, for a menstruating woman, kind of depending on the hormonal 
uh, milieu, let's say, you know, the, the hormonal landscape that she has, we have sort of a different composition of the diet where we alternate between higher carb, higher protein, and then sort of more of a ketogenic kind of 70, 20, 10 uh, breakdown. And that seems to really work when you pair it with a woman's menstrual cycle to be able to help her with sleep regulation. And, uh, you know, if she has middle smirch or like, obvi- like mid cycle uh, pain or the PMS that so many women complain of. Um, so I, 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 I say all that, that's all that to say that I, I like that you are open, that you're willing to say, Hey guys, like, I don't know everything. And like nutrition is one of these really frustrating sciences where, you know, you look over at, you know, physics, let's say, and it's like one thing doesn't work and they discard the theory and they're like, it doesn't work. It doesn't explain everything. So we have to actually, you know, build a more sophisticated model to explain these phenomenon. And in nutrition, we're sort of like sending people questionnaires and we're like, Hey, how many times did you have fish last year? Like how imprecise, uh, you know, we'll, we'll say, uh, like the, the pursuit of, uh, nutri- like the nutritional sciences can be, um, I don't know if you have anything to say on that, but I wanted to, um, I wanted to maybe double click on what you were just talking about around plants, but was there anything that you wanted to add to that? I think you're right. Um, probably women tolerate lower carbohydrate diets less well than men. I, I don't even think men tolerate super low carbohydrates long-term very well either. Uh, I think women probably have less of a tolerance to that. And anecdotally, observationally, I would say that women probably tolerate intermittent fasting less. Women probably tolerate uh, time-restricted feeding windows less and should be more uh, lax on all those things, lest they um, affect hormones negatively. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about plants because you brought them up. Um, you talk about in your book, uh, this idea that plants, um, exist on a spectrum. And when, when we're talking about plants, of course, we're talking about, as you mentioned, like the leaves, the roots, the seeds, the stem. Um, and I've talked about this at, with a couple of guests on the podcast. We had Dr. Gundry on the show and he was talking about lectins. That's one of his, you know, big, like the plant paradox is his book. And one of the things that we were talking about, and I'm sure you can expand on this is this idea that plants know when they're being eaten and they have, you know, in, in, you know, with lectin specifically, you know, there's these clock genes, these circadian genes that will turn on the production of, uh, you know, chemicals, lectins being one of them, um, so that they're released when the plant, when they're usually, um, when the predator, let's say, is is going to eat them. So if there's predators, usually at night, you'll have these clock genes that are um, that will turn on in the evening, so that when the predator is consuming them, that they're also consuming some of these things like lectins. So um, and then there's also been studies that when you knock out, let's say, you knock out the clock genes, that the the plant no longer produces uh, these toxins um, at night. Um, so let's, let's start off with lectins. Can you explain what lectins are? You mentioned their proteins are kind of sticky proteins uh, that, that bind to sugar molecules, but what, what is the mechanism or what is the, uh, what is the end target uh, of lectins when we consume them? Uh, yeah. I mean, I just want to hone in on something you said, which is that plants are freaking smart. There, there's evidence that plants can hear they can sense a vibration of a caterpillar on a leaf. And when they sense that other leaves will increase the amount of alkaloids, glycoalkaloids, plant toxins. So plants are just, they have their own jujitsu, right? Animals can run away, they can bite. They're smart, they're crafty, they're camouflaged. Plants 
plants are smart with chemicals and, and they can sense when they are being preyed upon it, like you said, with clock genes, with lectins, et cetera. So lectins are just one of these plant defense chemicals. It's perhaps one of the more talked about chemicals. Lectins are in all foods. There are carbohydrate binding proteins in all foods. There's carbohydrate binding proteins in meat, in milk, in grains, in beans, in plant leaves, in all foods there are lectins. So lectins are not specific to plant foods, but what appears to be the case is that plant lectins are more uh, probably damaging for the human gut. And so when I wrote the carnivore code, what, what I came across was a really interesting set of research around a couple of things. It appears that plant lectins, specifically peanut lectin has been studied and other um, lectins have been studied. They show up in the blood. So there are these carbohydrate binding proteins that are in foods, predominantly seeds, so seeds, nuts, grains, and beans that somehow get through the gut barrier and end up in the bloodstream. And that's a problem because they can do a lot of bad things in the bloodstream, whether they're triggering the immune system or being seen as foreign protein molecules. There are there are a couple of programs that our immune system has and, and it recognizes foreign fragments and it can initiate either pathogen associated molecular patterns or damage associated molecular patterns. And this happens in the gut or in bloodstream. And but these proteins can potentially trigger immunologic reactions. And that's really an underlying theme of all of this is the question, are plant foods, specifically vegetables, uh, even beyond the seeds and leaves, the stems, the roots, and the seeds, um, are they containing compounds that are triggering our immune system or leading some people's bodies to initiate an autoimmune response and could eliminating them improve autoimmunity? That's the overarching question that we're asking here and the general hypothesis that we're trying to substantiate with this type of thing. Lectins are also problematic in the gut where they appear to um, cause dysbiosis. So there's an interesting set of studies with in animal models, rats and mice, where they cause overgrowth of E. coli and other gram-negative anaerobes. And that appears to happen because of something maybe they're doing with the mucus cells, the goblet cells in the gut. It looks like the lectins somehow bind to the goblet cells and then cause fenestrations or holes in the mucus layer in the gut. And then you've got all of these gut microbiota touching the epithelium of the gut, which is not what's supposed to happen. There's generally supposed to be this mucus layer between the, the, the lining of our gut and these trillions of bacteria in our gut. And so this mucus layer is produced by goblet cells, which are in these crypts and in the, in, you know, in these invaginations in the gut. And something happens when we have lectins and it, it does seem to cause this overgrowth of the wrong type of bacteria, probably linked to inflammation in the gut, leaky gut, this opening is onulin, other uh, gap junctions in the gut causing immunologic reactions there. But it probably starts with something with the lectins binding to goblet cells and inhibiting this, but you see openings in this mucus layer, you see breakdown in the mucus layer and you see dysbiosis. And what we see clinically at a higher level is the elimination of these lectins often improves a lot of autoimmune symptoms. And so that's a really fascinating thing to look at. And I think in general, a low lectin diet or understanding where lectins are concentrated is a great thing for a lot of people and really improves a lot of, uh, chronic disease states that Western medicine is essentially powerless to affect positively. Yeah. And I think that that that's really in line with my observation with caring for uh, my, I have a lot of experience with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So, and I would say in autoimmunity in general, there's usually some hallmark of 
you know, um, hyper permeability of the intestinal wall, as you mentioned, some type of gut dysbiosis, like all of them, almost all of them share that. And when you are explaining, you know, the mechanism, for example, in terms of how, how leptin can disrupt that, you know, it's breaking those tight junctions in the gut, as you said, it gets through. And then that's going to incite this inflammatory response because the immune system is like, what the, what is that? This is a foreign protein. So now we create, you know, antibodies against that. So anytime it sees that, and this is sort of the, you know, the reason, another reason why eliminating um, gluten is really important because specifically for my hashies ladies, but this would, I would, I would paint broad strokes and say for any autoimmune uh, patient, because that protein gliadin very, when you sort of look at the structure, looks very similar to the thyroid. So it would be very easy for the immune system to mistake the thyroid for the gliadin. So if you've already created these, you know, these antibodies against the gliadin, because you're consuming lots and lots of gluten, um, you know, and I would also say it also very chemical, very uh, also structurally resembles a cerebellum as well. Now, thankfully we have, you know, a blood brain barrier, but even then you can have a leaky, you know, what's called like a leaky, leaky brain as well as leaky gut. So you can have these autoantibodies that are now uh, attacking the thyroid, um, which is going to, of course, you know, cause a whole, a whole, lots of, lots of dysregulation, lots of, uh, lots of rampant inflammation, these hashies flares that, um, that are, that are spoken about. Um, one of the things that I, um, I wanted to ask you, um, and I want to talk about, you know, your, your evolutionary, uh, lens around this, and you've, you've been alluding to it a little bit, but for example, my, my ancestors are Portuguese and Lebanese. So father's side is from Portugal, mother's side is from Lebanon. In Lebanese cooking, there's quite a bit of chickpeas. There's lots of lentils. But one of the things that my grandmother always had on her stovetop was a pressure cooker. And I didn't really like know what she was doing. She would just kind of, you know, make the, put the chickpeas or the whatever, the lentils in the, you know, in the pressure cooker, cook them. And then she would go on to make, you know, whatever she was going to make, like, or the sesame seeds, like she would make uh, tahini or she would make, you know, hummus, which are foods that, um, you know, I grew up with, so they're sort of comfort foods to me, but understanding these, like these mechanisms that we're talking about, I wonder, and I, I would like to understand your perspective on this. Is there ways that we can attenuate some of the, um, uh, some of the negative effects that consuming some of these plants, like the chickpeas or the, or whatever, um, through, uh, you know, mo- like through cooking them, through changing their structure, through heat or pressure? Yeah, uh, let me answer that, but let's back up even further. People, I think the cultural, the basis for a lot of this is fascinating, and that's probably the last few thousand years, perhaps. But if you rewind further, 20,000, 50,000 years, or even 200,000, you know, we look at Homo sapiens arising 350,000 years ago, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, probably 2 million years ago. I think that's where we need to really start to understand that's our lineage as humans. And when I talk about being an Italian, for instance, my last name is Saladino and not eating pasta or tomatoes. People have this sort of cultural reaction and they say, how can you be Italian? How? And eat those things? Yes. Right. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. look at like Italian people eat it. You know, my ancestors ate, ate pasta and my ancestors ate tomatoes and therefore it should be good for me. And I think, whoa, 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 whoa. your ancestors <laughs> were hunters. Right. And, and more recently, your ancestors were in cities and they were domesticated, you know, they were, they became, you know, part of this pastoralist culture after the Neolithic revolution or de-evolution, 
more accurately, happened 10 to 15,000 years ago. But all humans, everyone listening to this has a much richer ancestry and hunter-gatherer cultures. And it's only probably more from the last few generations of memory that we think of, you know, Portuguese, Lebanese, Italian for my family. And, and we think, oh, these are the, these are the traditional foods. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're amazing or the best food for humans. It means that's what we've adapted to in the last, or uh, we've adapted, I think, in terms of what we can source as humans, but we are all from a lineage of, of, of beings who were made human by eating meat. So let's rewind even further, you know, 2 million years ago, you see the human brain go to begin to have this sort of parabolic growth where it goes from three, 400 cc's up to 1500 cc's over the next 2 million years. And that is, that is a, there's a really, really strong case to be made that that is because we are hunters. There's cut marks on bones. There's mass animal graves that happened 2 million years ago. There's uh, carbon dating. There's strontium dating, calcium barium dating. There's all sorts of uh, stable isotope data we can look at uh, from fossilized remains of humans to suggest that throughout the majority of human evolution, we were getting most of our protein from animals rather than from things like beans or nuts or seeds, not plant foods. We were getting protein from animals. We are hunters. And there's papers in the anthropology literature that say, you know, Neanderthals were essentially hyper carnivorous, early humans, hyper carnivores. We were focused on meat and we always have been. And if you go back to currently living hunter gatherers, like the Hadza in Tanzania, where I went last year, you ask them, what is your favorite food? They'll say the biggest animal I can hunt, which for them is usually an eland, like a 2000 pound impala. And what is the best day of your life? It's the day I hunt and kill the biggest animal, bring it back to the tribe. And so let's just, I think everyone should understand that like, all of our lineages, no matter where we're from, whether people will say, I did a video on Instagram the other day and said, potatoes are bullshit. And I can talk about why And people are like, I'm Irish. That's crazy. And the and, Irish just threw yeah. their hands up and like, yeah, they just throw their yeah. hands up. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and right. I didn't want tomatoes. And they're like, I'm Italian. That's bull. That's crazy. Right. I'm like, Look, right. you have right. a deeper ancestry as a hunter gatherer. And it's true. When did our ancestors eat plant foods? When did our ancestors eat vegetables? Well, when they couldn't when, afford when they couldn't afford anything else. Exactly. When they couldn't find anything else. When did mm -hmm. when they couldn't when they weren't successful hunting? So the Hadza are the same way. The Hadza don't go foraging for salad. The, the, the men in the tribe or the women in the tribe don't wake up and think, "Wow, we're going to find some really tasty pumpkin leaves today, and we're going to eat them raw." They, that's that's crazy. They think, "Man, I hope my husband kills a big animal today, and we can eat some freaking bone marrow or a heart or a liver or some muscle meat because that's what I really want." Right. And then if they think, "Oh, we found a hive, we got some honey, or there's some ripe fruit, berries," those that's what causes them to celebrate. They don't get excited if somebody's like out hunting pumpkin leaves or tubers. That's like that's fall back food for them is the word used in anthropology literature. So I think that over time in the last 10,000 years, then the last 5,000, 2,500 years, which is what most of our ancestry can remember the last few generations, we've become, you know, quote unquote civilized. That, that word is fraught with so many explanations. And I have a podcast on my podcast, which is called Fundamental Health with Chris Ryan talking about civilization and the, the downfall of civilization. He wrote a great book called Civilized to Death. But we have to think that our recent memories, people who are civilized, quote unquote, they're living in places where they probably can't get or can't afford meat for all their meals or it's not available or the butcher doesn't have any meat. So what do they do? We, we are resourceful humans. We are omnivores, but we are animal focused omnivores. And so we find the ways to make these plant foods the least toxic that they can be. But I think the most important thing that I would like people to understand is that throughout human history, and I believe this persists very strongly in our genetics today, in our physiology today, there is a clear hierarchy. There's a totem pole of 
preference of foods. And it starts with meat and organs and then it's fruit and honey and maybe something like raw dairy. And then you, and then you get into like plant foods, like vegetables. And, and as you're saying, if you're going to eat these vegetables, if you're going to eat leaves and stems and roots and seeds, we must understand how to detoxify them. And also realizing if I have to detoxify this food, you better believe it's at the bottom of the totem pole historically. And then all the corollary questions, which we can potentially address if you want, how did these foods that are at the bottom of the totem pole get elevated to the top? Like the totem pole has been completely reversed, right? It's like somebody yes. just took yes. this nutritional hierarchy and completely reversed it and said, oh, yeah. just make meat a condiment. Don't eat a lot of meat. And then you should eat lots of vegetables. Like, whoa, no, I'm going to turn that thing up all the way reversed. Eat as much meat and organs as you can. And then if you're going to detoxify, if you're going to eat the vegetables, make sure they're detoxified. So to your question, yes, pressure cooking is probably the best way to do it. No, pressure cooking does not remove all of the defense chemicals um, from plants and can still cause issues for people. So I think that it depends on where the, where the person is, um, how significant the chronic health issues are, how significant the autoimmune issues are, whether they would want to include detoxified plant foods in their diet. But the most important thing to understand again, is that hierarchy and that look it's organs, meat, fruit, honey, raw dairy. Those are the really the most celebrated foods throughout human history. The more you focus on those, the better you're going to do. Um, you can eat detoxified plant foods, but then you're sort of signaling to your body that you're not a good hunter and you're not in a good hunting tribe. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. When you're talking, you're reminding me of, um, I'm forgetting his full name now, but it's Yuval Harari... Something. You all know there's Harari. Yeah, yeah. There's the other name. Yeah. So Real he sapiens. wrote Homo sapiens. And in the book, he wrote something like, you know, did we domesticate the wheat or did the wheat domesticate us? You know, because all of a sudden you have to tend to this crop and you are, you know, harvesting the wheat and putting it in the, you know, tower for storage or whatever. And now you are no longer nomadic. Now you have to stay here. And then now you have resources to protect, right? We build homes and now we stay in those homes rather than you know, being outside at dusk, let's say, or walking around collecting berries, et cetera. And what I think you're talking about is, you know, more generally is what is the best diet for the species? You know, you mentioned uh, Neanderthals and my son, who is very much into history uh, right now. He's like, why are there no Neanderthals? And I was like, well, that's a really good question because, you know, we have dogs, lots of species of dogs, cats, lots of different types of cats. There's only one species of human right now, which is Homo sapien sapien. And you can argue that, as you were saying, this consumption, like through the advent of fire and consuming more meat products, that our current lineage, if you will, was able to go from this, you know, low, smaller brain size to this uh, much larger brain size. So now there's like strategy and power in numbers. And, you know, potentially this is why we don't have ne like that line or that lineage of humans no longer around. We don't have Neanderthals anymore because they were 
arguably bigger, arguably stronger, uh, but you have the con- through the consumption of meat and fire and strategy and like weaponry, et cetera, uh, able to overtake um, sort of a bigger species and for us to rise to the top of the, um, the food chain. So let's, let's, let's come back to, uh, let's come to back to, so pressure cooking, you're like, eh, it's like, you know, meat always, like there's this hierarchy. Um, we should always be consuming meat, uh, over anything else. And I, I do, I would love for you to comment on, um, why you think that that hierarchy has been flipped? Like one of the, one of the things, and I've discussed this with many people on the show, like Rob Wolf's been on, we've had, and there's this sort of discussion around this vegan agenda or this plant only based agenda. I saw uh, a professor who I'm actually going to be interviewing soon uh, on Instagram. He was drinking uh, cricket protein powder. You know, he, you know, he, some from like Mexico had, you know, sent him like some company in Mexico had sent him, you know, this protein powder made of crickets. And I was like, I am not eating insects. Like that is where I draw the line. So what are, what are some of your thoughts on why you think that this hierarchy has been reversed? And, you know, we hear of, you know, Bill Gates being like one of the major, you know, farm owners, uh, or at least, um, agricultural, I'll say landowners in the United States and really pushing this like beyond meat and like plant-based and we have to limit the amount of meat that we consume. Uh, where do you think that comes from? And, and do you think that there is, uh, and why, and uh, maybe the question is, why is it so sexy? Like, why does it really seem to, uh, be taking hold where you have almost cult like, uh, individuals who, um, I mean, there was this woman on TikTok, my son told me about that was removed because she was talking about, you know, the people who died in the nine 11, you know, the, the attack on the twin towers, you know, some of them deserve to die because they were meat eaters. And I was like, what are we talking about? Like, what are you saying? You know? And so I would love your comments on, on that. Why, why you think that hierarchy has been flipped? I think that, uh, it's tough to piece it together fully. You can look at the history of the medical paradigm beginning in the 1950s, 1960s with Ansel Keys and the American Medical Association, the American Heart Association, badly done epidemiology that associated meat consumption or saturated fat with higher rates of cholesterol and then higher rates of heart disease. And we're pretty well aware now that that's false, you know, that, that studies are cherry picked, that meat doesn't lead to increased inflammation. There's plenty of good interventional studies to suggest that, to corroborate that. We know that that doesn't make sense evolutionarily. Why would a food that's been at the center of our evolution and is, and I will say this with hundred percent conviction that is essential for optimal human health, optimal health of children's and adults, and that is meat and organs. Why would those foods be bad for us as humans? It makes absolutely zero sense without even diving deep in literature. And if you even look at those first stories, what's very clear is that there were sort of these that money and power were at the were at the, the were behind a lot of it. That saturated fat got demonized because the sugar industry was saying, "Hey, let's put the blame on someone else." And I think that that continues today. That there is a political hot potato, and that political hot potato is trying to get passed around. And, and right now, it seems that um, larger polluters, let's just say, or larger producers of carbon dioxide are trying to shift the blame toward cows. And that has become the rallying cry of those who wish to virtue signal. And then they're trying to say, well, look, it's both healthier for you and healthier for the planet, neither of which is actually um, something that can be substantiated with facts 
though it's quite an emotional narrative. So I think that the, and again, I think this is, this is large financial interests, um, large polluters or large producers of CO2, which comes with particulate, which I think is probably uh, just as bad, if not worse than carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that are looking to just say, let's just put the blame over there. Right. Like, don't worry about, don't worry about uh, um, airlines. Don't worry about, you know, coal power plants in China producing particulate. Don't worry about any of that. Worry about cows because they're the real problem. And I think that it's driven by financial interests. And when you think about this, it begins to become clear and the parallels are often seen. It's a pattern in history that repeats itself too often that there's not a lot of profit in growing a cow. There's just no margin when you grow a cow. I don't know any cattle farmers who drive Lamborghinis or have houses in Nice or private yachts. Like it's not a lucrative business. But what is a lucrative business is plant foods because you can make processed plant foods. There's also no, there's nothing lucrative about kale. I don't know any kale farmers that drive Lamborghinis or have private yachts either, but I know a lot of people. I can think of a lot of people who are major investors in Beyond Meat, Impossible Burger, Cellular Meat, and all of these other in vogue technologies that are gallivanting around on private yachts. So follow the money. I don't think you need to look much further than that. So it's just, I think it's a game of margins in business. And this is where it turns to just complete speculation, but you could imagine a situation where someone might say, there's no money in meat. I don't care how good we get at producing grass-fed, grass-finished regenerative meat. That's really expensive to produce a high quality thing, just as it should be, because it takes a lot of energy to go hunt a wild animal. But if we convince people that they should be eating soy and tofu and processed plant food because it's better for them or better for the environment, well, that's, that's a fantastic proposition for people. And then you start to think, well, that would make a lot of sense for Bill Gates to buy a bunch of farmland, to grow a bunch of low, uh, low nutrient density food, to be made into processed plant food, which you can sell at a bigger margin. Again, it's all speculation. Who knows? But that goes on, that goes down many rabbit holes and you start to see the fallacy of it because you can't, you can't grow plants on land and expect that land to be fertile for very long. You have to have animals on the land and, you know, we can go over it wherever you want from here. But I think that it's, it's a pattern that we've seen repeated many, many times. And it's a shame because I think that, that it's causing many people and their families to suffer. I mean, how many humans now um, are, are suffering needlessly? from nutrient deficiencies, how many children are being born, how many children are uh, developing with nutrient deficiencies and not reaching their full potential because their parents fear meat or um, fear too much meat in their diets and organs. Yeah, I think uh, I'm in 100% agreement with you. I think that there's this, uh, we'll call it vegan fairy tale that cow farts are ruining the planet. And when you think about the, you know, the reason why someone might be vegan, you know, the economic, the environmental or the ethical arguments, once you sort of start to tear them apart or like open them up a little bit. They don't really make a lot of sense. And in many cases, and I've talked about this on other podcasts, so we won't go down here, but in many cases, for example, when you look at uh, places that are not North American, like very hilly, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, terrain, the only thing that they can grow there you know, the only thing that can, is, is animals. And in many places where women are, you know, sort of second-class citizens, this is the, and they're, and they're in animal husbandry, like they're taking care of these animals. This is their only source of income. This is how they provide for their children. So this sort of, uh, we'll call it, um, 
you know, North American or Eurocentric view that everything needs to be plant-based, I think really falls flat when you sort of look at the diversity of the world. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to, we won't go down there uh, because that's, that's maybe our next, maybe the next time you come on, we can talk a little bit more about that. But I, I wanted to, you mentioned, um, you know, big profit and um, when you have, when you're selling something like canola oil, safflower oil, cheap ass fats. Okay. You can sell them at a huge profit, but they are, you know, in my opinion, deleterious to human health. And I wanted to make sure that in our time together, that we talked about the different fats, um, that you can consume, um, and sort of the different, uh, um, uh, sort of fates, uh, that they may, uh, play. And I wanted to, I think that fats are, are so important. You mentioned Ansel Keys. I think it's been un, um, unfounded the, the demonization of saturated fats in general, but let's talk about linoleic acid. I know you talk a lot about that, uh, in your book, you've talked a lot about that publicly, but what is the, uh, uh, what is the fate when, when we are consuming a lot of linoleic acid, how does that alter uh, the fate of the fat cell. This is super important and I'll try to keep it high level and not overly technical, but, um, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I will say the science here is not settled, but it it's, it's, I'm pretty convinced this is a massive, massive problem for humans. So what we have here is an 18 carbon omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid that is found primarily in seed oils. And to a greater extent than animal fat or specifically tallow, it's found in avocado oil and in olive oil as well. And we can talk about the relative amounts, but linoleic acid is what some people would call an essential fatty acid. I don't really think of linoleic acid as essential because if you are eating anything on the planet, I don't think there's ever been a single person on the planet who had a linoleic acid deficiency, but I think that there are billions of people on the planet who have excess linoleic acid. And that is uh, there are a lot of lines of evidence pointing to that being a very problematic thing, perhaps the most problematic thing. So that's a, that may sound like hyperbole, but that is what I believe um, that the linoleic acid and excess linoleic acid is probably the single greatest driver of chronic illness in humans in 2022. And over the last few hundred years, since it, the beginning of seed oils in 1910, think about this as a framework in 1900 and prior rates of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer, dementia were a fraction, 10 to 30 times lower than they are today. Uh, and all we were eating was animal fat. So every piece of fat that we had, and you know that our great grandmothers and grandfathers treasured that fat. That was lard, that was tallow, which is from cows, and that was butter. And the rates of these chronic diseases were a fraction of what they are today, a minuscule fraction. If that's not enough for people to call into question the demonization of saturated fat, I don't know what is. 1910, Crisco company develops hydrogenated vegetable oil. Previously, it was a machine lubricant. And off we go to the races. Evolutionarily, hunter-gatherers don't get a lot of linoleic acid in their diet. Most animal fat is 2% linoleic acid. The majority of their calories are from monounsaturated fats and saturated fats with small amounts of polyunsaturated fats in the fat of the animals they're eating. Remember, they're not eating a lot of seeds and nuts. Those are seasonal things, they're fallback foods. And even if they were, you can't get anywhere near the amount of linoleic acid eating corn that you can get from eating corn oil 
or soybeans versus soybean oil. I'm not a fan of soy or corb, uh, soy or soybeans or corn, but you get the idea that the, the, the fats are really concentrated in this, this new product that humans have never seen. So what's the problem with linoleic acid? Well, it's, it's really two to threefold. Linoleic acid can do a lot of problematic things in the human body. Have you ever heard of the drug Ramonabant? This is yeah. a fascinating one. So Ramonabant is a CB1 antagonist. It agonizes the cannabinoid one receptor in the brain. And what we found in animals and in humans is when you give them a Ramonabant, they lose weight. They don't have uh, as much appetite. They lean down. They become more metabolically healthy because it's blocking endogenous uh, cannabinoids. There are endogenous cannabinoids. That's type of compounds that are in marijuana. Marijuana has tetrahydrocannabinol, cannabidiol, and many others. Endogenous cannabinoids are things like anandamide. So we make these compounds in our body. We have cannabinoid receptors, but when you block that receptor, you see improvements in appetite. And similarly, when you stimulate that receptor, what happens if someone smokes a lot of marijuana? They get the munchies, they get hungry, they eat a lot of food, and they usually right. end up with right. you know, obesity, metabolic dysfunction. Well, one of the breakdown products of linoleic acid in humans and animals is a compound called 2-AG, which is a cannabinoid, and that activates the CB1 receptor. So there's a direct mechanism by which excess linoleic acid is hijacking satiety at the level of the brain and causing people to overeat, causing people to um, eat more foods and not be satiated. So that's the kind of thing you can block with Ramona Band. The problem with Ramona Band is that you need endogenous uh, signaling at the CB1 receptor to avoid things like depression and suicidality. So we can't use that drug in humans, but it elucidates this really fascinating mechanism. And we see this 2-AG being made from linoleic acid directly in humans and animals, suggesting that there is a pathway by which excess linoleic acid really wreaks havoc on satiety signaling. There's also the problem with linoleic acid in our cell membranes and in our mitochondrial membranes. And specifically, the mitochondrial and cell membranes of the fat cells are the most highly affected here. You and I chatted about this a little bit pre-podcast. Humans are unique. Well, we're not unique, but we're like other monogastric animals. We're like chicken, turkey, ducks, and pigs in that we don't have the biochemistry to get rid of polyunsaturated fatty acids. We can't remove double bonds from a polyunsaturated fatty acid, which means if you eat more polyunsaturated fatty acid, whether it's linoleic acid, alpha linolenic acid, cosapentaenoic acid, docosahexaenoic acid, you store more of that and you store it in your fat. And so we can look at the fat stores of humans and directly correlate that or directly connect that with their consumption of linoleic acid. At a clinical level, what we know is that the more linoleic acid someone has in their fat, the higher rate of cardiovascular disease they suffer. That's just an association, but it's compelling and it generates really, I would say, um, uh, striking hypotheses. At the level of the fat cell, you know that the more linoleic acid you eat, the more seed oils, the more seeds, the more animals you eat that are consuming corn and soy, this is even a problem with things like chicken, pork, turkey, and um, those monogastric animals, and we can talk about that in a moment, but we can focus on seed oils. The more of this linoleic acid will accumulate in your cell membranes and your fat cells. Now, then you think, okay, so I've got more linoleic acid in my fat cells. Now what? Well, there are breakdown products of linoleic acid called oxlams, oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism, specifically 13-HODE, 13-HODE, and 4-HNE, 4-hydroxynonanol. And we know every step of this pathway. We know that if you eat less linoleic acid, you have less 4-HNE in your body. 
And then we also know that if you have more 4-HNE, your fat cells become quote unquote broken. That's the high level. The technical is that your fat cells, as they expand, presumably because you have 2-AG or other uh, cannabinoids that are hijacking your, your satiety mechanisms and you're overeating or you have a caloric surplus or you have a macronutrient surplus, as your fat cells look to expand, they can either do two things. They can grow in size or they can divide and, and become more numerous. The latter is called hyperplasia. The former is called hypertrophy. And we know that when there's more 4-HNE around, this breakdown product of linoleic acid, this oxlam, the fat cells get broken and it affects them at a genetic level and prevents them from dividing. So they can only hypertrophy. Now you can imagine what happens if a cell kind of wants quote unquote to divide, but it can only expand. It's like a balloon and the balloon has a, has a memory. The balloon has a knowledge and says, Hey, if you keep pumping air into me, I'm going to burst. So I'm smart enough. And imagine balloons could do this, right? Magic balloons could say, if you keep pumping in air into me, I'm just going to make another balloon. Okay. That's the, that's the way that it should happen. But what happens is that the balloon says, Oh, now I can't make another balloon, I'm just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's going to get more and more stressed. And as these fat cells get more and more stressed and bigger, they get sicker and sicker. You see immune cells infiltrating into adipose depots. When cells get sick, the cells start releasing adipokines. So adipokines are hormones coming from your fat cells. They're like a thyroid hormone or an estrogen or a testosterone that comes from your fat cells. And those adipokines signal to the rest of the body. But in this case, those adipokines are signaling, hey, we're really sick and really bloated and really fat and distended and unhappy over here. You guys should like sound the alarm. Something is going wrong. And then they start linking side, they start leaking cytokines, which is, you know, more traditional cellular signaling molecules. And they start leaking free fatty acids into the blood. And when all those things end up in the blood, the periphery, the muscles, the brain, the blood brain barrier, the kidneys and the liver become insulin resistant. So it starts with sick fat cells. Insulin resistance starts with sick fat cells. Metabolic dysfunction, I think, is a better word for insulin resistance. It starts with sick, broken fat cells. That's not really even the stuff of opinion. That's like doc, that's like accepted literature. And how do fat cells get broken? Well, they get broken because they get too big. How do they get too big? I think it's clearly because there's too much linoleic acid in the cell membranes from evolutionarily inconsistent consumption of the wrong type of fats by humans. And we're eating more of these wrong type of fats because who doesn't like to eat? 10 Doritos or 20 Doritos or hundred Doritos. Well, but Doritos soaked in linoleic acid, of course you can't stop eating it. There's a lot of reasons and satiety is quite complex, but that's essentially what happens. But I think a lot of people talk about insulin resistance. They talk about metabolic dysfunction, but no one ever discusses the mechanism probably because it's quite technical, but yeah. that's what's going on, I think. And it's really easy to avoid. It's easy to test and to know if you're metabolically broken and it's easy to avoid. The, the way to avoid it is just don't eat seed oils. And then the next level is actually the hardest level of people. Be aware of all of the fat that you're eating. How much olive oil are you consuming? How much avocado oil are you consuming? How much fat from animals that are fed corn and soy that are monogastric animals are you consuming? The basic takeaway here is how much linoleic acid are you getting in your diet? We are getting massively increased amounts. We know this. There's been great studies by Stephen Goyenet and others documenting that in the last 50 years, the amount of linoleic acid in our diet has risen massively. I think it's something like 15 to 17% of our calories now as Americans is from linoleic acid. Contrast that to hunter gatherers to less than 2% of their calories from linoleic acid. So we're 
closing in on 10x uh, an increase in linoleic acid in our diet. And that I think is really wreaking havoc because of this evolutionarily inconsistent biochemistry at the level of multiple levels, the brain, the fat cells, et cetera. Does all that make sense? Yeah, it all makes sense. And I, and I appreciate it because it's it kind of goes back to what you were saying before about this reverse in hierarchy, right? So we in modern society now, it's like polyunsaturated fatty acids. You have to be having all these PUFAs. These are really great for you. And, you know, just to complete the picture, when you were talking about the four hydroxynonanol, that's all unsaturated bonds, right? So highly oxidizable, as you said, it disrupts the fat's ability the adipocyte to, um, to proliferate. So it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger leaks, all of this gunk, as you were mentioning so eloquently, uh, into the system. And, and then we have this hormonal fallout as well, where, so we have this, uh, you know, the adipocyte and the insulin signaling, um, makes it, you know, more pro-inflammatory, uh, I would say in women as well, like as your, uh, adiposity increases your tendency or your uh, you know, you tip the scales towards this estrogen dysregulation as well. And this estrogen dominance, which has the kind of knock-on effect of, of, of whacking the thyroid, as I'd like to say. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about steric acid then, uh, or a fat that is typically or commonly found um, um, in animals. So uh, talk a little bit, or maybe, and maybe you can contrast that a little bit, like the, um, uh, the 18, you know, it's an 18 carbon, uh, fat. Maybe you can talk about how that is different from the linoleic acid that we were just describing. Yeah. I think you touched on this a little bit. We hinted at this in common nutritional thinking. There is this idea that, that I think you and I both reject that a calorie is a calorie and that calories in calories out. It's just thermodynamics. Well, this is what we're talking about here, that not all fats are created equally. Um, I think that, there is clearly a hormonal component to fats. There's a signaling component to fats. All the food we eat is informational for our bodies. And the information and the physiologic response to your body when you eat linoleic acid is very different than when you eat stearic acid or odd chain uh, fatty acids, which are things like pentadecanoic acid, heptadecanoic acid. And so this is a part of a broader conversation about the unique nutritional composition of animal foods versus plant foods. So if you look at plant foods, stearic acid is very rare in plant foods. There are a few sources, but I think the best sources of stearic acid are animal fat, things like tallow, which many people may not have heard of. That's a fat derived from rendered kidney fat in an animal, whether it's a deer or a cow, like that's where most of an animal keeps its fat is this perinephric fat. It's kind of that, there's retroperitoneal space and it's just this fat that our body stores that kind of holds our organs in. So um, that's, that's the high steric acid fat, but all of the fat in an animal has 10 to 15 to 20 or even 25% stearic acid. In plants, stearic acid is very rare. There are a few sources in plants. The really, the only one that I'm aware of is cocoa butter. So you can get stearic acid in cocoa butter. Not a fan of chocolate. That's a heartbreaker for a lot of people for a lot of reasons that I can go into later if we want. But you can get stearic acid in plant fat, which is in cocoa butter. But there's no stearic acid in coconut oil. There's no stearic acid in olive oil or avocado oil. None of these plant fats have stearic acid. The other thing is that animal fats also contain fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin K2, vitamin E, odd-chain fatty acids, which are things that never get talked about but have some really compelling data regarding 
um, cognitive protection with aging. So yet again, here's a point where in nutrition, we don't have it all figured out. We haven't even understood what all the nutrients are in animal and plant foods. So it's funny because we think like we've got it all figured out. We know exactly what humans need. We can make a multivitamin. Nobody's getting scurvy anymore. We've got it figured out. Well, we are still in our infancy with nutrients and there are so many cool nutrients that we are beginning to learn about. And I'm especially interested in the ones that are only found in animal foods because they're, I think they're really often associated with deep, deep optimal health. The stearic acid is one of them. So there's fascinating experiments in mice and humans showing that when you give a mild stearic acid, it basically gets a six pack. It just gets lean. Like you can, there's studies that are really kind of gross, but um, from a medical perspective, they're fascinating. They've opened the mouse. They've obviously killed the mouse and you can see the visceral fat. They feed some mice corn oil, some mice olive oil, and some mice stearic acid. And the mouse with Stearic acid has no visceral fat. Visceral fat is the fat inside of the peritoneum, the fat around your organs. It's not the subcutaneous fat that you can pinch by your belly button. It's the fat around your organs. And so this mouse fed stearic acid has like no visceral fat. They're just lean and healthy. Whereas the corn oil fed mouse or even the monounsaturated fat fed mouse, the olive oil fed mouse gets a higher visceral adiposity. They have this big sort of momentum that comes out. And then in humans, there's a great experiment. It's one of, in one of the nature journals, I can send it to you, where they, they took people and they made them vegan for three days, which is always a bad sign. And they starved them of stearic acid. And I'm sure in addition to lots of farts and them being kind of cranky because they weren't eating meat, that you can see their mitochondria stop burning fat. So the number of acyl carnitines in the blood goes up. Acyl carnitines is a marker of sort of fat metabolism and the mitochondria actually fragment. And then they give them back stearic acid, thankfully in a shake and the mitochondria fuse and they turn on and the acyl carnitines in the blood go down, they start burning fat. So we know that if you want your mitochondria to work properly, to fuse, to be popping along, to be using fat for fuel, which is something all of us should do, you need to have stearic acid, but we don't think about this. Like there's no RDA for stearic acid. There's no, no, nobody says like, Hey, you have a stearic acid deficiency, but I think probably, I don't know, maybe 80% of the population probably has a deficiency of stearic acid. So bringing it back full circle with linoleic acid, I think that if weight loss is a goal, which it is for most people, then you need to think about your ratio of linoleic acid to stearic acid. And you want to minimize linoleic acid and raise stearic acid as high as you can. How do you minimize linoleic acid? You avoid seed oils and you also avoid animals that are fed corn and soy. This is something I've hinted at. I just want to make sure I clarify this point. Chicken, pork, turkey, duck, et cetera, the fat from those animals, if they're fed corn and soy, is going to have more linoleic acid than their wild cousins. The same thing with eggs, the same thing with olive oil and avocado oil. People say, what about olive oil and avocado oil? Are those seed oils? Not technically, but olive oil and avocado oil are 15 to 20% linoleic acid versus tallow, which is 2% linoleic acid. So I say to people like, why would you use olive oil which has 20% linoleic acid when you could use tallow with 2% linoleic acid and more stearic acid. And they say, well, I want to put it on my salad. And then at that point they realize who they're talking to. And I think, <laughs> why are you eating a salad in the first place? Like stop eating. But like if someone, I told, I spoke to someone the other day and they said, oh, I, I use olive oil to like saute or roast my vegetables in the oven. And I think, why wouldn't you use tallow for that or butter? Like there's well, way Well, then you have to consider cooking oil, like smoke point too, right? Like yeah, olive yeah, yeah. oil again is like, I think it's 325, 350 maybe for olive oil, but you look- would never heat it. Yeah. And it's also, you know, just from a consumer perspective, often cut, right? It's yes. often not pure olive oil. That's the other thing you have to be mindful of. And it's rancid um, often in the stores. I mean, there's a well-known 
you know, nutrition pundit who's super by big fan of olive oil that I won't name, who recently had a huge recall of a bunch of his olive oils because they were all rancid. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know why humans would do that. Olive oil is better than 50% linoleic acid soybean oil, but I'm still not a huge fan of it or yeah, avocado and, oil for the same and thing. And I think just for like, just touching on that weight loss piece, I think if you want your fat cells to be uh, resistant, let's say to this hypertrophy, um, you want to be consuming more animal fat. Like this linoleic acid does seem to increase the sensitivity, like the insulin sensitivity, um, to these fat cells so that they're able to actually take in more substrate and just get bigger and bigger and into this balloon that you were describing. So excess linoleic acid is going to create this hypertrophic, like this hypertrophic adipocyte. And you're also sensitizing the fat to do more of that. So when you're consuming animal fats, it appears as though that it also makes the, uh, adipocyte less, uh, likely to take that up as well. So that's, that's another, um, observation that I just wanted to make sure that, um, we talked about. Yeah. Well done. You understand this stuff deeply. That's impressive. (laughs) There's, we think about insulin sensitivity as a good thing, but not to confuse people at the level of the fat cell, you don't want your fat cell to be overly insulin sensitive. You actually sort of want your fat cell to be insulin resistant. This is why the term is very misleading. And the way to make your fat cell sort of say, Hey, I've, I've had enough is to eat saturated fat. Right. Right. Let, let's, let's pivot slightly to organ meats, because I know part of the carnivore ethos, that, you know, part of the, op, you know, modus operandi, if you will, is that we're not just eating muscle meat, which is what most of us tend to eat. I, you know, I love my, like, I love my meat. It's really super tasty, but organs are also a really important part of that. And we've been touching, we touched, talked a little bit about, um, liver and, you know, I was saying to you in the pre-chat, you know, I've seen you, you know, with your Kayla's bullshit t-shirt, you know, eating your testicles and eating the, you know, the liver and heart. And I actually remember, um, I'm totally dating myself now, but I remember, um, Anthony Bourdain, uh, on one of his trout, like when he was still live, obviously doing his show, uh, he had eat, like he was, he ate a beating heart. I think they had extracted it from a snake or something. I can't remember what the animal was, but he would, he ate a heart of some animal and the amount of uh, outrage at the time was like, how could you do that? How could you eat a heart? And this has been, you know, when I was young growing up, like liver, it was like liver and onions. That was like, that was the, you know, the dinner that we sometimes had. My grandmother would often cut, um, heart into like the, you know, into the ground, you know, she put like chicken hearts into, uh, you know, ground beef. So, and, and bone marrow, like, let me just, my favorite is bone marrow. Like uh, there's nothing better than like putting a long femur bone with the marrow, a little salt, um, in the oven, um, and just kind of scooping it out afterwards. But, um, for, but for some people who are listening, that may seem absolutely disgusting. And maybe that's back to your point around being civilized and civilization and sort of being more and more divorced from our roots. And, you know, that we are really, you know, not just on this earth, but of this earth. And there is a, you know, life death cycle that we all have to sort of embrace and become comfortable with. But if we're, if we're thinking about organs, where might someone start? What might be some organs that are, uh, less exotic, we'll say, that are less exotic than, um, you know, than maybe starting off with bull testicles. Yeah. Yeah. The testicle thing is, you know, it's a fun thing that I, that I do. And I talk about it to, to gather attention, but you don't, you don't have to start with testicles. Let's, let's actually start this discussion with why the heck you would want to eat organs. And we've hinted at this 
a little bit previously, but the real easy take home here is that animal foods are incredibly nutrient rich and muscle meat doesn't have all the nutrients you need to kick ass. And so the question that I ask people is where do you get your riboflavin from? And most people have maybe heard the name riboflavin, but they say, Oh, my multivitamin, which is the worst place to get your multivitamin, worst place to get your riboflavin. But if you're not eating liver or heart, you're almost certainly deficient in riboflavin. It's a critical B vitamin. And it's especially important for those of us with MTHFR polymorphisms. I have MTHFR 677C to T as many Italians do, which means that my homocysteine goes up because my body isn't so good at making 5-methylfolate um, because of that goes through the MTHR, MTHFR enzyme. But What's crazy is that riboflavin is an allosteric regulator of methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, MTHFR. And so if you get enough or even more than the RDA of riboflavin, you don't need to worry about how good your body is at producing 5-methylfolate. You don't need to take methylfolate because your body will essentially correct that uh, MTHFR enzyme and it'll function as normal if you're getting enough riboflavin. This is just an example of why B vitamins are so important um, for all of this. So <clears throat> it's really... Um, it's really, really critical that people understand where are you getting unique nutrients from? Where do you get your choline from? Where do you get your vitamin A from? Where do you get your biotin from? Where do you get your vitamin K2 from? Where do you get unique nutrients that we don't think about every day? You know, basically probably most people think like, uh, I took my vitamin D today. Did I get some vitamin C? That's it. But if you really want to kick ass, if you really want to be good, whether that's you know, for a woman, you want skin, hair, nails, you want fertility, you want young looking skin, you want good body composition, you know, or a man, you want strength, libido, whatever you want. Like this is more complex than just two or three vitamins and two or three minerals and some macros. It's the, you really have to get this full richness of nutrients. And it's something that we've always done as humans, always in quotation marks until probably the last few hundred years. I mean, I think you don't have to go very back very far in your family. You remember eating liver as a kid, but I think generations from now on will never know what organs are because they will never be eaten. So we are at this critical moment in human history where organs are being forgotten. You go, I go with the Hadza, the organ, the, the liver is treated as gold. It's treated like a, a sacred piece of um, like something absolutely precious. It's two hands. It's placed on a rock. It's divided among the tribe. They eat the organs first. All animals eat the organs first. Orcas, orcas kill great whites. They eat the testicles and the liver. <laughs> And they just leave them there. They just want the balls and the liver. And, mm -hmm. you know, lions go for the viscera. They go for the liver and the heart and the spleen, all that first, because there are unique nutrients in these foods. Heart is a great source of coenzyme Q10, answering taurine. So you can get down into the weeds and be like, wow, uh, muscle meat is great, but it lacks a lot of things. Liver is a great complement. So if people are thinking about organs, the two I would start with are liver and heart. And liver, because of just the richness of nutrients in there, and heart, because it does have unique amino acids that are better represented than muscle, and it has answering, taurine, carnitine, and coenzyme Q10, and there's a rich sort of tradition and history around heart. So I'll just say a few things about each of those organs, and then I'll pass it back over to you. People get concerned about vitamin A in pregnancy. Like I think that there is, you can eat too much liver. But most people are not eating anywhere near enough liver. I think that the probably the Goldilocks dose of liver is around an ounce a day, half a pound of liver per week, even half an ounce to an ounce of liver. We're talking a quarter size piece of liver per day. That will change your life. Even you know a 50 cent size piece of liver, an ounce of liver a day will change your life. 
Couple that with a few ounces of heart, you now have riboflavin, you have folate, you have biotin, choline, K2, vitamin A. You have just changed the nutritional composition of your diet massively with a few ounces of food. This is the this is the magic of organs. And I think beyond liver and heart, most people don't even need to go there unless they're really, really interested in geeking out on this. Certainly for men and for women who are interested in sexual health and fertility, I think testicles great. You and I talked a little bit about female reproductive organs fallopian tubes, uterus, and ovaries. Those are great. Those are much harder to get for people, which is so why hard like, to get. They're yeah. Which so is why, hard. Yeah. yeah. That's why desiccated organs can be good. Um, that's what we, that's why we do what we do at heart and soil. This is a company that I built to help people get desiccated organs. I thought my mom and my sister, my dad, they'll never eat fresh organs, but they will take them in a desiccated capsule. So that's, that's, I think the best on-ramp for people, fresh organs are best. But if desiccated is what most people can do, or the only way someone can get uterus, ovaries, testicle, et cetera, then that's fantastic too. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point around the liver, um, there's, you know, heart and soil I know has a liver supplement. I use um, ancestral supplements, I think is the name of the company. And about six, six capsules, you know, you take six of those desiccated liver and that's about an ounce, right? So you might take three in the morning, three in the afternoon or whatever. And you sort of have your, you know, you've meet your, your minimum effective dose of, of consuming, um, uh, liver, let's say if that's what it is. And I, I love, I, I take liver uh, every day. I take heart, I take, um, the cartilage one, I take the, um, cartilage and something else in there. I forget now. Um, and I would love to get my, like I have, I was on your website actually this morning, seeing if it was in stock that I could her package. Yeah. yeah. The her package. I was like, I wonder if he has it. Not, not yet, but I'll, I'll keep my, I'll let you know. Yeah. We have another one called skin, hair and nails, which has trachea and scapula cartilage in it. Nice. Nice. Mm -hmm. And how much do you, you know, if you're, if you're moving from raw organ, let's say to, cooked organ to desiccated, uh, organ capsule, uh, you know, you said that, or, you know, raw is always better. Do you, do you have sort of a rough estimate of sort of how much you might lose as you're like going for, cause I always had cooked, you know, I never had raw liver or raw chicken. Like I they were always scrambling it in with stuff. Um, so is there any estimate or any idea what kind of loss of nutrients that you have under the heat? Like if you're cooking it or stir frying it as my grandmother and my mother did, or uh, even moving to a desiccated uh, supplement, is there any estimation there or is it? Yeah. Some yeah. things are more heat labile than others. The B vitamins are probably heat labile. So there's probably going to be some loss of folate, maybe a little bit of loss of riboflavin in the organs. Um, but I would actually say that like fresh raw, and the next is desiccated and then you have cooked and dehydrated because the desiccation process is freeze drying. So you can lower the pressure and you can dehydrate the organs at 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero Celsius. Oh, so I think low. cooking is going to denature more because you're cooking at a higher temperature than freeze drying for a lot of these things. And there's interesting experiments in mice where if you give the mice like raw liver or raw spleen, or you give them desiccated liver or spleen, they get like really excited and run around and they have lots of energy, but they don't get quite as excited if you give them cooked liver or cooked spleen. Mm. So I think it's actually like fresh raw, which has its problems, right? There's always a concern of contamination though. I think that's rare if you're getting it from a good source and then desiccation is great, not perfect, but pretty darn good. There's going to be some loss of some heat labile B vitamins, but I think that it's pretty darn good for most people. Nice. Nice. I wanted to, um, I want, I told you I was going to ask this, um, in the, in the pre-show and I want to talk just a little bit about, uh, censorship a little bit and, uh, and COVID and part of our, you know, I started at the top of our 
conversation saying, thank you for rescheduling because I actually had COVID the day, like I was coming down with sort of these more severe symptoms before we were scheduled to record. And one of the things that I've noticed uh, personally is since, so I lost all my taste, all my smell. That was like several days of that, like marked loss. So I could only, I couldn't, there was a couple of days where even if you put you know, I have this neurological kit that I used to um, have in, in clinic where I was, you know, I would have like coffee, you know, coffee beans, vanilla, you know, some smelly markers and stuff where we were, you know, doing a neurological test on, on patients. And for a couple of days, like I had my face in coffee beans. And I couldn't smell a thing, couldn't taste anything. Of course, could, you know, it's very peculiar when you can, you have the nociception that there's texture, but you're not actually getting any taste. It's very bizarre. Um, and so that started coming back. But one of the things that didn't come back um, is my, um, we'll say my affinity for vegetables. So normally I, you know, I, I would describe myself as I sort of eat according to my menstrual cycle. So there's some weeks where I'm much more keto. There's other weeks where I'm high, much higher protein and higher carbohydrates. Um, and um, those carbohydrates were from, uh, some of the things that we were talking about, some of these lectin, maybe some higher oxalates, which we didn't actually get a chance to talk about today, but my, um, I don't want them <laughs> now. So I have meat like red meat. That's what I want. And I have maybe some sauerkraut, maybe, uh, I have, and I pickle my own stuff. So I'll have like, you know, maybe some, you know, maybe some pickles or maybe some, like I have onions that I'll have. Um, so I know that's, you know, maybe I'm just a freak, but is there, have you heard of anything like that where, you know, post COVID where we clearly see this neurological infiltration, right? This change in uh, olfaction, this the change in taste, uh, sort of alt, do you see people kind of becoming more carnivore or is that just, that's just my end of one? I've, I've never heard anybody else say that. It's, that's the, that's the best side effects of COVID that I've ever heard of. <laughs> I mean, I lost my taste and smell. I remember I was in Utah when I got COVID in January of last year and I was drinking kombucha and eating meat. And I was like, wait, I can't. Oh, and it was strange for a week, but it eventually came back. But I, I wish, gosh, I wish more people had that experience. I think that we'd have less kidney stones and probably less, less chronic fatigue and less pain and people would be healthier overall. We probably have less, less issues in general. Oh man, that's funny. So I'll, I'll keep you abreast in terms of my development, but just like no desire for it. Right. And wow. I often talk to women, especially with women with estrogen dysregulation around the benefits of maybe con like activating CYP1A1 gene, like, you know, the, you know, the, um, estrogen metabolism pathway mm -hmm. through sulforaphanes, which I know we, I'm just sort of being respectful of your time here. Um, we're going to have to get you on for another, sure. uh, an, another show to kind of go down that rabbit hole, but absolutely no desire. Like I don't want broccoli. I don't want anything. I just, I want, sa I want fermented, my fermented stuff. So I've been fermenting more things and then just like the meat, the red meat. Um, well, I'd, I'll, I'll comment on that briefly. I think people do ask me about that when I say like broccoli is bullshit, kale is bullshit. They say, what about, what about, you know, indole three carbonyl or diindole methane or something for people with estrogen dominance? And to that, I say, yeah, I mean, it's a band-aid. It's like a, there, I, 
I won't debate that there are chemicals in plants that have pharmacological effects in humans, but we have to be aware of the associated side effects. And just like any prescription medication that you're going to give someone, whether it's metoprolol or a statin, I mean, I'm not a fan of prescribing either of these medications that, you know, it comes with a package insert and we know that metoprolol is going to lower your blood pressure, but it's also going to slow your heart. It's going to change your sympathetic nervous system. It could affect erections. It could affect all sorts of things in humans. It can cause depression and cognitive slowing. Statins can cause muscle fatigue. It can also cause memories, whatever. We know these things have side effects. We know that these exogenous molecules have side effects. And so this is the problem with, I would say, a lot of the isothiocyanate type compounds, including sulforaphane or other, you know, compounds from the brassica families, though they may affect um, the detoxification systems phase one and phase two a certain way, and that can be advantageous for estrogen metabolism in some women, we have to realize that has an attendant side effect. Obviously, you know this at the level of the thyroid, inhibiting iodine absorption, et cetera. And I think that in general, I, we think similarly in this regard, the goal is to correct the root cause. And so if a woman is estrogen dominant, they have excess estrogen, correct the root cause, which I think in 9.8 cases out of 10 is insulin resistance. And so I think with every, anytime anybody asks me that, I say, what's your fasting insulin? You know, like I want to know if a woman has estrogen dominance, what's your fasting insulin and then go from there. And I wish maybe we'll have to develop a test for this, like a fat biopsy, like how much linoleic acid is in your fat. Um, what's going on at the level of your adipocyte, how healthy are your adipocytes um, to really, I think that's the ultimate um, fix for estrogen dominance, because we know that this is associated with insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction as well. It's almost, it's almost just the same thing. You know, it's almost like pathonomic or something. Right. Right. Well said. Um, all right. So just, uh, you know, if people want to find out more about you, you mentioned your, your supplement company, um, just kind of let people know where they can, you know, you're so entertaining on, uh, Instagram. Uh, you have a new <laughs> handle, of course, after being deleted about talking about the, um, the, the virus that shall be, well, we'll just, the virus that was, yeah, that will not be named. Yeah. Uh, so why don't we tell everybody where they can find you and how they can interact with you? Yeah. So Instagram is good. Carnivore MD 2.0. Um, <laughs> after the, after I got Zuckerberg. Um, and then if you're interested in desiccated organs and we have a really, really robust team of health coaches at heartandsoil.co.co. People can always email us with questions about how to eat an animal-based diet. Um, obviously, we have all the desiccated organs on the site. Hopefully, we'll get her package back with uterus ovaries and uh, fallopian tubes very soon. And it's it's been a really, I'm really proud of what we've built with a company because it just, it helps a lot of people whether they buy our supplements or not. The people that don't are getting fresh organs, which we're even more excited about, but that's a really great place for resources too. But I try, um, I try to get to most of my DMs on Instagram. People can reach out to me there, but I, I do try to make it fairly entertaining. I, I eat testicles from time to time on Instagram and sometimes drink blood, but sometimes like I just you can't look away. You're like, Oh my God, he's going to do it. No, nope, he's going to he do it. it. He yeah. does it. <laughs> <laughs> he does it. Wonderful. Well, thank you uh, so much for your time today. I definitely would love to, uh, if you're open to it, love to have you back on. There's a couple of things that we didn't get to today that I think we could have a really awesome conversation about and sort of continuing this. And I, I just want to reiterate again, just my admiration for your ability to evolve your uh, philosophy over time. It is very rare to find uh, that we have people who, as I was saying, like, it's just seek out, it's just, you know, calories in, calories out, and that's it. If you have anything else, then that's, you know, you're eating too much or you're not moving enough. And I think that, um, you know, your willingness to sort of not change your mind, because I don't think you've changed your mind, but I would say evolve your uh, understanding as we um, 
understand more science. I mean, that's sort of the scientific method is like, as we get more information, we can add to the paradigm that we have, or we can alter it somewhat. So thank you very much for your, for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're really welcome. It was great. Love to come on again. And here's hoping that the scientific method doesn't go extinct too. I was just talking to somebody else about this the other day. You know, there's a lot of people in the media taking heat for asking questions, um, Joe Rogan, et cetera. And I think what happened to being, I mean, that's the reason I got deleted. You know, I don't know what happened to being able to ask questions, but uh, at this point I've just decided to focus on the nutrition side, uh, lest I get deleted again. And the goal is to just help as many people nutritionally. And I'll leave, you know, conversations about viruses to other people for the short term. But I think that the scientific method is something we need to preserve. It's going extinct. I agree with you. And I, you know, I think that it's so frustrating. I mean, we, you know, basically have a gag order, you know, from our governing bodies that are like, you cannot talk about it. Um, You know, medical uh, doctors who I'm friends with that are like, we, if if you give a medical exemption, let's say um, to uh, what is looking like a coerced medical procedure, the V word, uh, they're being brought up by their, they're being, you know, like they're being brought up by their regulatory bodies questioned why. And I think that, um, you know, when we think about, when we think about any pandemic, any viral, any invading pathogen, let's say, okay, your metabolic health is of primary importance. When I had COVID, I lost eight freaking pounds in a week and I was eat, like I was eating, I was trying to keep the, like I, you know, and I, it really eats away, at least my experience of it really ate away at my reserves, but I had reserves. You know, I am someone who lifts heavy. I lift almost every day. You know, I'm um, someone who had adhered to a ketogenic diet for, you know, several years years now. So I had the, you know, the, the capacity to withstand that, but we know from the data, you know, and I know that we're getting on another topic and I feel like I could <laughs> talk to you forever, but like, you know, the, 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 me, your metabolic state, you know, dysfunction or, uh, you know, your, we'll call it, uh, you know, proper metabolic state or not, or dysfunction, um, is really a big predictor in, how you deal with it, long-term consequences, morbidity, like if you're going to die or not from this thing. So I think that there needs to be, and I still yet not really, haven't really seen any political, you know, I understand from a political perspective, you're just trying to talk to the sort of the, the lowest common denominator, like everyone needs to get you know, some certain, like a, you know, everyone needs to get vaccinated or else is sort of the messaging. Um, and to change your behaviors, like to start eating organ meats or to eat more stearic acid or some of the things that we've been talking about is a much bigger ask than rolling up your sleeve. So I understand from a political perspective, why this might be a very difficult conversation. And they're probably going to get voted out if they start talking about it too, because most, you know, we'll call it Americans. I'm in Canada. I'll say the same for Canadians. We want the path of least resistance. And I think that as a society that really needs to change, we need to have strong men and strong women that are willing to get uncomfortable, um, and train your resistance so that we can, you know, be resourceful when there is something to resist. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Metabolic health is key. Yeah. Yeah. But we won't talk about it on Instagram. We'll just talk about it on this podcast. Hopefully this podcast doesn't get deleted. Um, but thank you so much for your time, Paul. And I'll, uh, we'll reach out and we'll, we'll schedule like a, a 2.0 as a, as Sounds a great. Mentioned. Sounds yeah. great. Thank you so much. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice 
advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 